Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Rikish Thought. Well, today we're going to talk about a law preventing landlords from excluding convicted felons and other criminals. We're going to talk about Biden versus the economy and a $16 McDonald's meal that went viral and is giving the White House headaches. And then we'll talk about a new study about white parents fleeing Asian American kids. Ricky, exciting stuff, but most exciting of all, we're inviting on my friend Natalia Bonanno, who is a good old-fashioned landlord in the city of New York, also one of my oldest, not old in terms of you're not old, Natalia, but (laughs) oldest friends. I've known you since middle school, IS-51. Shout out to that prison masquerading (laughs) as a school over there. And we also went to college together. I've known you so long. You were actually the person who knocked on my dorm room and told me 9-11 was happening that morning, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. We go back a long way. And I was late to this recording, which means that you, I think, filled some of our team with some propaganda, uh, yeah. which I will talk about another time. But you are a landlord. So I think you're. we invited you on because this segment is all about something that I, you never hear in progressive circles, but landlord rights. Because we, t- we hear about tenant rights a lot of times, which I think are important. But I think we often miss that landlords are people too. So, Ricky, we we have this particularly weird story coming out of Seattle that I think is indicative of some trends around the country. But why don't you tell us what's going on here? Yeah. So this is um, a battle that's been going on in Seattle for a while. um, And there's now pressure on the Supreme Court to uh, rule on the constitutionality of a 2017 law that they passed called the Fair Chance Housing Ordinance, which prohibits landlords from doing background checks on potential renters and also prohibits them from increasing the rent or security deposits on on anyone with a criminal history. And the only exception there is um, for sex offenders. But even still, a landlord who does not want to rent to a sex offender has to go to the Office for Civil Rights and I- explain to them what a legitimate business reason is for the denial. And so the Pacific Legal Foundation, a couple of years back, um, sued to end the law, uh, calling it un- unreasonable, overbroad, and unduly burdensome. And alleging that it abridges the 14th Amendment rights of landlords um, and due process and also the, their free speech rights because these are technically public records, somebody's criminal records. And a district court first cited with Seattle and then a Ninth Circuit court reversed that in part. But now this case has been taken up by a whole host of different activist groups and, and institutions, including the Buckeye Institute, the Manhattan Institute and the National Apartment Association who are all kind of coming down on on the side of landlords and saying that you should have a right as somebody who owns a property to determine what sort of person you want to rent it out to. Even though I think just to steal man the other side, the idea in Seattle is that people with criminal histories have a hard time actually finding housing when they get out, that that's a major barrier to reintegrating into society and could perpetuate recidivism rates. And so it's an interesting kind of point of tension. But at the moment, it seems like this could potentially be something that the Supreme Court weighs in on. Yeah. And just to explain this Ninth Circuit case, it's a bit puzzling because what they said was the landlords have a First Amendment right to view the records, but they may not use the records against the tenants, which is it's an odd ruling in a way. And I think it comes back to uh, there's a, a longstanding principle of review that the courts have been using when it comes to property rights in this country, which is called rational basis, which is the lowest level of scrutiny that courts give to a right. So essentially, depending on what kind of right we're talking about, like for instance, if we're talking about 
the right against racial discrimination, for example, uses the strictest of scrutiny, meaning the government has to come to the table with an unbelievably strong reason for why this is the one way to solve this problem and how the particular law is narrowly tailored to just solve that issue and not create any other issues. When they use rational basis, they basically say the government it just needs to provide any rational reason why they'd want to do this. And there's been really bad jurisprudence because of this. Uh, I implore the audience to just Google the Wikipedia page of a case called Kilo versus New London in the early 2000s, where the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision said that um, the city of New London could kick out this Kilo family from their private residence that they owned and seize their property and hand it over to Pfizer to build a development. And it turns out, and the Supreme Court said 5-4, they could do that using eminent domain, which is meant to hand property over from a private individual to the government, right, which nobody would challenge. They wound up allowing the government to seize this property and hand it over for private development. And not only that, but charge the family back money for the years that it took for this litigation to go on while they're on their private property. And then the kicker, Pfizer never went through with the development. It, it you know Up until at least the last time I checked, it was a vacant piece of land that's not generating any tax revenue for the city. So this is how little regard the Supreme Court has, or at least has had, uh, for private property rights, but they're going to have a chance to weigh in on this. But let's bring it to the landlord here. Natalia, before we talk about the insanity of New York, how do you think of this from a landlord? Because I'm sure you've had some experience in this regard. Yes. Um, generally, you know, we tend to think as landlords, we don't have any rights. And it reminds me of right now we use brokers to rent all apartments because I'm not really sure what the exact wording is, but it's essentially the same that you can look at a tenant's credit score, but you can't use that number against them to deny them a right to apply for rental. So, you know, now we just use brokers. We tell them, find who you think is the best candidate, bring them to us, and that's it to not get in, into any legal trouble. Yeah, and it's, you know, as an owner of property, we've had an incident recently, or I say recently because the court case is still ongoing, but it started in 2020 where a tenant was harassing the tenant below him. He's has some uh, mental problems. He's been in and out of mental hospital, but he's the son of a tenant who lives there. So he stays with his mom. And he happens to also be racist, so he targets any African-American in the building, will stalk them outside their apartment, tell them, you know, to get away, move away, just throw things at them, is very violent. And when tenants complain to us, we essentially have no rights. We've been trying to evict this tenant for five years, and it's not going anywhere. So not only can we deny someone like that or someone who has a criminal history, but if they're already there, it's also hard to get them out of the apartment, even if they're harassing other tenants and causing property destruction as this one tenant has. And from what I understand, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get back to the heart of the case, but you know, in New York, which I think is indicative of a lot of progressive cities, there's almost very little you could do to get a tenant out of a building when they're causing trouble, whether it's not paying rent or not being responsive in any way. Give me a sense of that. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with this. Yes. So you would think it would be easier if someone is causing destruction to your property or harassing other tenants um, or causing other issues, but it's actually harder. You have to start what's called a holdover eviction case, and that takes a long time. So this one, um, he started harassing this tenant five years ago, but the case started three years ago, and we have not even seen the tenant in court. So they delay as much as possible. Um, they get extensions. I 
without reason, they just show up and say to the judge that they need, you know, another 60 days to reconvene with their attorney. And then they granted that. And this has been going on for three years. And they're still in the building. Yes. And also not paying, but that's not the basis of eviction in this case. So even if we did, if we were able to get them out, we have to start another case, like just a civil suit to get any background known to us. And not to mention any property damage because he tends to this particular tenant floods his bathroom to cause water damage to the tenant below him that he doesn't like. So strict non-payment cases are somewhat quicker, on average about a year. Um, right now, the courts are a little backlogged still from when they were closed during Quick COVID. as a year. Yeah. So that could be 12 months of, you know, unpaid rent. <laughs> and how did the COVID pandemic and, and like non-eviction regulations and stuff like that impact you as a landlord? So it impacted us a lot. I mean, a lot of people who maybe could have afforded to pay. I've had tenants just call me and say, you know, I've heard that I don't have to pay rent right now because there are no evictions. And I said, you know, we can't evict you right now, but you should still technically pay your rent. And once the court opens, <laughs> we will start an eviction. So a lot of those tenants then applied for um, assistance programs and were able to get assistance. Some tenants get that assistance and then continue not to pay. So those cases are still ongoing. But yeah, we had a lot of tenants not paying during that time. And also at a time when bills were even higher for us because a lot of people were working from home or, you know, not working at all in their apartment, causing more wear and tear, going through appliances, um, electricity bills higher. So, And Natalia, explain a little bit about the origins of this, because you're not Vornado or CBRE, right? You're like you're, Tell us a little bit about how this business even came about, your family's business. My dad uh, came here as an immigrant from Italy when he was about 10 years old. Uh, he was the first college graduate. His family became an electrical engineer um, and then got his professional engineering license. He just decided he didn't want to work for other people or the government. He used to work for the government anymore. So he started to invest in real estate in Brooklyn. The first apartment building he bought was 30 units, um, which I lived in as a baby. And then we moved to Staten Island. And then he kind of grew his business. Every five years, he would refinance a higher property value and use that cash to buy another property. And, you know, along the way, there are some wins, some losses. Sometimes the building property value goes down or just the cost of repairs is too high. So you have to sell and then you can use that money to reinvest in another property. So that's how he started the business. And he managed everything himself pretty much up until 2010 when my sister started working with him. And then in 2018, when I was working as a food scientist, so as a completely had a completely different career. Um, and he pretty much begged me to start working with them because he was turning 70 that year and just felt overwhelmed with the sheer amount of paperwork that the city requires and dealing with phone calls from tenants um, and things like that. So I only came into the business a few years ago to try and help them out. Yeah, Ricky, I do want to get to the the, the good faith reasons for these laws, but I am struck by we say that people have a property right. It, having a right to your property seems to, it, it should include something like who is allowed to live in your property, giving you the ability to, you know, obviously a contract is a contract, but once somebody has stepped outside of that contract in very obvious ways, like the ability to exclude somebody, the right to exclude, it should be like, I think central to the rights of the property. I'm sitting in my apartment that I own in Brooklyn. Like if somebody off the street were to be able to walk in here at any point or my neighbor could walk in my apartment, I couldn't do anything to them, then I don't really own the apartment, right? We could say I own it, but I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's also another argument beyond this, which is that if you exclude certain records from 
what landlords can sift through, like their criminal history, then they might overcompensate in other background research. And an example in Seattle that they, I think, um, is a cautionary tale is, is their fear there, which I guess they don't have the same regulations around using credit scores, but their fear that a credit score might be used more aggressively against someone because it's there are fewer data points to analyze whether or not someone is a suitable tenant. So I think that removing one of several factors makes the other factors all the more valuable as well. But I mean, even just an example that came out of Seattle is a um, a couple that is involved in this lawsuit who had a triplex that they were living in themselves and they wanted to rent out two of their units and they have two children at home and and wanting to know if someone has a criminal record is something that would be you know, super sensitive and, and personal as somebody who's actually living in the same building with your own children. Um, and so I think that sort of example puts flesh in the bones. Um, I mean, I think between the three of us, we probably have more agreement on this issue than perhaps is typical. But yeah, yeah. well, I, I've been a I've, I've been a renter most of my life, my adult life, and I get it. I've had some crappy landlords, including my last landlord, who you know, I'd never, I mean, not only was I a, a good tenant in the sense that I'd never missed payments, but I'd been a tenant for like six years in two different pieces of property there, but they knew I, they had me on an under market rent. So they concocted an excuse to get me out. The timing happened to work because I was buying a place anyway, but like there's like shenanigans all over the place. And also they, there's a weird tax issue in New York where certain landlords can sit on empty properties. And it's, it's, I think it's, I don't blame just the landlords on this because the city, like in in many ways, has been so hostile to landlords that in some ways they're willing to take the tax write off than to actually rent their places in certain contexts. But that's what's happening with my old apartment is they're sitting on it because they know I still have a claim to that property. <laughs> so it's almost like a standoff that's going on right now. But you're right, like this leads to adverse consequences. One another is increased security deposits that people are going to ask for as a sort of proxy for this. Although this law is outlawing that in Seattle as well. They're outlawing having big security deposits? Based on any criminal history. I see. But what if you just raised it generally, just like the credit score, yeah, right? I, I just to protect your the, downside. Across the board, you could, yeah. Or another example is to fewer properties to rent. Like, Natalia, I hear this all the time whenever, like, over the years, and I'm like, ah, you know, maybe I'll invest in this, like, project my friend is doing to buy some duplexes outside, like, a Temple University in Philadelphia or something. And what I constantly hear is you don't want to be a landlord. Like, you don't want to invest in this because it's such a pain in the ass. Yeah. And the city makes it harder every year. And, you know, I should mention that most of our buildings that we own and manage are rent stabilized. So there's an added layer of Mm. regulations for us um, as opposed to two that we own that are free market. You know, so the example you gave with your rent, we're more limited on how much we could raise the rent. You know, it was 0% from 2020 up until last year when they allowed a little bit of a higher increase. Yeah. And and I think like depending on the jurisdiction and, and the lawyers for the plaintiffs in this case pointed this out in their amicus brief because they're, you know, again, they're asking the Supreme Court to weigh in here, which I think is a good possibility they would because this is a really interesting case and it would allow them to revisit this sort of kilo standard for private property that they've had. But they they list one example after another in which landlords are actually held accountable for the behavior of their residents. So essentially you're saying you have to include these people, but if they do certain things, we will hold you accountable. And certain ju- jurisdictions have gone so far as to even seize the assets of landlords when there there are drug rings operating, for instance, within people's property, et cetera. So essentially what you're saying is you have to take people, even if you know they have a history of violent crimes, even if they're a sex criminal, you still have to ask a special permission. <laughs> and then uh, if they do something, you're then liable for the crimes on your property. Uh, and that 
that's just like such a terrible bind to put people into. Yeah, Ravi, what's your outlook and on how the Supreme Court will come down on this one? Well, I think if they took cert on this, I, I would not be surprised because it was a 5-4 before in a more liberal court. It was still, I think, a conservative court, but it was, I think Stevens had written the majority opinion in that, who is appointed by a Republican, but, uh, you know, wasn't, you know, a predictably conservative voice on the court. What was interesting about the Kilo case is that there were civil rights groups, I think, like, for instance, like the NAACP, for example, that was on the side of the the resident. I do think that there are, landlords are such a boogeyman, you know, and Natalia, you know this, you're a Democrat who, like, I think is kind of like in a weird spot here because nobody's been more unkind to, I think, landlords than Democrats. They're like the big boogeyman. But in this case, I think, number one, like, you need to incentivize landlords to want to do the job because so many, like, so many people rent in this country. You want to make sure that we make that a viable profession. And two is we need, landlords are also often responsible for building new housing. Like, there are developers, you know, quote unquote, which are often landlords sometimes too, or at least partners with them. In order to decrease housing, we need more people to want to do this. And if you make it as hard and as expensive as they've made it, fewer people are going to build new units, fewer people are going to want to manage new units, and certainly fewer mom and pops, Natalia, like your family are going to want to do it. And you're just going to like sell out to private equity at some point, and then you'll just have big behemoths who are really good at covering their ass. Yeah, exactly. Like we can't really afford to have a unit sit empty for that long. So we aren't one of those people who will just, you know, leave a unit vacant, but other companies can afford to do that. So those are typically, you know, other properties that we've had to sell because we just couldn't afford to manage them. We've had to sell to larger companies. And then we've had tenants approach us from those properties saying, you know, where else do you own that I can move to because I'm not happy with this landlord. Right. Yeah. So just to, to explain where we are legally right now, like one thing that everybody kind of stipulates to, and they sort of do it in the the plaintiff amicus brief, although this is the Goldwater Institute, so I'm not even sure they truly believe this, but by and large, this country says that, you know, if you're discriminated on the basis of race, sex, yada, 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 you can't do that. I think most people agree with that. And that's the strict scrutiny standard, right? I think the question then becomes, well, what can you take into account? Like if you're like, hey, I'm a drummer uh, and I want to move into your place and there's an infant under you, like we'd say probably that makes sense. If you're somebody who has committed major property damage and there's a reference check of other landlords, right, that you've had before, which in certain cities when I've rented, I'm sure you guys have had this experience too. They say, what are your references of other landlords? That seems sensible. And then there's, but now we're saying like, maybe you could do a bunch of those things, but you can't say whether you shot somebody in the head or something, right? Which is like probably relevant information when you're deciding who to go on your property. But the flip side of that is, as a society, if we're going to let people out of prison, they need to have a roof over their head or they're much, much more likely to commit crimes. And this is where I think it gets really dicey. And I'm not sure, I'm, I have some thoughts on this, but I'm, you know, do either of you have a, a thought about like, hey, if it's not required of the landlords, what do we do to make sure that we don't have people coming out of the prison system automatically homeless? That could be honestly, a case for more public housing rather than like put the, I mean, we do have public housing infrastructure and the impetus maybe should be placed on, on that infrastructure. Not that I'm, I mean, that I know that goes against my libertarian vibes in general, but I do think that if the government is going or has an interest in making sure that the people that they incarcerate are ultimately able to get a more graceful off-ramp back into society, I don't think the impetus should be placed upon private 
homeowners and, and landlords to pick up the slack there in a place where their better judgment would suggest that they shouldn't. So I would I would think that that might be. I mean, I know that that's a whole other can of worms, and and you know, if you put a bunch of people together in, in public housing that have a criminal history, potentially that's uh, something that could spiral out of control. But if if the government is in, is interested in getting involved and putting their finger on the scale of how how to disperse people back into society, I think that that would be probably a test case for utilizing those resources in a, a more thoughtful way. And I think you could also get um, different agencies involved. Like right now, instead, I only work with few agencies that are local who help place people who are like mentally disturbed or have been victims of domestic violence. Um, so those companies are technically our lessees. They sign the lease. And if we have any problems with their client, they call it, who's the person living there, the tenant, they will, you know, move them elsewhere, um, especially if they start causing damage to the property or start harassing other tenants. So that's kind of an incentive to us to run to those people because, you know, we know that if there are any issues, we can have them move quickly. Whereas if they were just the lone tenant listed on the lease, it would take forever to have them leave in court, uh, go through court to get them evicted. Yeah, I, I agree with all of you in the sense like this is the government right now outsourcing their responsibility to average citizens and requiring people to be really above and beyond, right? And I think number one is just because you don't require people to take people with a criminal record doesn't mean they won't. Depending on how the market works, some people decide to do that. This is true of the Section 8 market, for example. Certain people decide that they take Section 8, certain people don't. It's not a perfect market, but it's better than when the government was directly running all the public housing. I think second is, and related to Section 8 is, if the Section 8 is generous enough the market should be able to account for some of this because ultimately if there are people with a voucher in hand who can pay money that is reflective of what the market should take, then entrepreneurs should step up at some point and do that. And I think if they don't, then that's where that's where the government needs to step in and say either, okay, we're either going to issue grants for nonprofits or other private providers to do this for us and we'll be really generous about that uh, or we'll just step in and do it ourselves. And you combine all that with good, social, effective social services, and I think we can do a lot here. But I think requiring people to take in anybody and not take into account background, I think is both going to lead to resentment, it's going to lead to people just breaking the law. Like the, the Ninth Circuit case is just impractical. The idea that people are going to look at that and not use it is crazy. Like they'll find reasons to take the information they have and exclude people in ways that you won't be able to detect. It's just simple human nature. Agreed. All right. Well, Natalia, thank you for joining us. Uh, where are things stand right now in New York? Like, I, I, I get the sense that the laws are getting worse for landlords. Is that the is that the case? Yes, it is getting worse. I mean, now there are more um, agencies that landlords are joining to try and fight for landlord rights, but not really making a lot of progress in court. Um, but yeah, it is getting worse. And I think the biggest problem is that just the court process takes forever. If there was a quicker route to getting tenants evicted who either don't pay or cause destruction or any other disturbance, then it would be a lot easier um, for tenants to accept tenants who they you know might not be like, on the top of their list. Yeah. Well, that's a bummer. Okay, well, uh, you're now our resident uh, landlord, so we'll have to bring you on as as these stories develop, I, I think we'll probably find out at some point 
in the near future, whether the Supreme Court takes this up. And I think this will be fascinating. This this is a case that could go well beyond the narrow issue of landlords. I think it could go to how the Supreme Court views property itself, which I think is really important. Because right now, as a up until today, they haven't really treated it as a true right. They treat it almost as like a suggestion. So it'll be interesting if this case leads to a, a massive change uh, in the way the court looks at what you own, including your residence. So um, we'll be fascinated. Well, well, thank you very much, Natalia. You're welcome. Anytime. I resist the urge to use TikTok in any way, but I could not help but uh, notice the story that just can't, just doesn't seem to go away, which is the story of a Post Falls, Idaho man who in 2022 in December posted about a meal that he had at McDonald's. It was a limited edition smoky double quarter pounder BLT with fries and a Sprite, and it cost this man $16.10. It was a novelty item. He posted about how expensive it was, and it went viral. And then the same post has now come back in part because of uh, McDonald's had some, I guess, really good earnings, and people kind of use that as an opportunity to to say that they're sort of price gouging. And there was this uh, article in the Washington Post that has gotten a lot of attention from Jeff Stein and your friend Taylor Lorenz. And it basically says, what's going on here? This is causing a lot of headache for the Biden White House, who, as we've covered in previous segments, is largely presiding over, at least in recent months, uh, extremely positive economic data, but seems to have a real problem with people generally, and especially young people, not believing that the economy is strong and that the Biden economic record is strong. What meaning do you make of this? I would say that the cost of living and the cost of food and housing going up during his tenure is something that people have rightfully taken note of. And during this time period, since he's been in office, the cost of an average Big Mac has gone up from four eighty nine to five fifty eight, which, as a function of percent change, that's pretty considerable. And for people who are trying to make their paychecks last, like yes, sixteen dollars and ten cents is not typical, but I do understand kind of the the sentiment. Um, and you know, consistently, you see the reports of like you need to make twelve thousand dollars more a year this year in order to even out the feel of inflation. So I don't think. I mean, I think this is less of an issue of young people not believing economic data that's real and in front of their eyes. I think the cost of living data is most acutely felt by younger people who are probably stretched a little tighter on their on their bills for necessities. However, I would I mean, I, I will stipulate that inflation is down to 3.2 percent in October. It's down, but that does not mean deflation. However, there is goods deflation happening um, on appliances, used cars and long lasting durable goods which has fallen year over year, um, down from a, or 2.6% down from a peak in September of 2022. But, you know, I'm not willing to go with the narrative that everything is is fine and dandy and everyone loves the Bidenomics that we're getting. I think that there's some truth in that as well with, with some important metrics in terms of like food and housing, which is something that everyone needs. Let's do a counterfactual here. Let's pretend that it was somebody you respect more than Biden. Like maybe not necessarily somebody you would vote for, but let's say it's Andrew Yang. You know, we're a couple years into the Yang administration and we got this data, right? Inflation is coming down. Wages are rising. Inflation is coming down after a high during your tenure. That's not, that's different. Let me, let me keep going. Uh, US GDP growth 
came in at 5.2% in the last quarter, growing faster than China for the first time in decades. Uh, compared to, you know, you could just say, well, let's compare it to other countries that are similar. UK, no GDP growth during that period of time. Germany actually had contraction. Unemployment rates are hovering at record lows. Inflation, as you talked about, is down. Median wage growth is outpacing inflation. So what we're talking about actually is people are actually making more money then inflation is rising, which means that goods are becoming cheaper in a real way as are services. But obviously, there's uneven stuff there. There always has been. Um, median wage growth is outpacing inflation. Average credit scores are at an all-time high. And as we talked about on uh, November 7th, which people can go back and listen to that episode, when you look at the year 2022, which is actually when this was posted, and this was actually posted at the very end of that year, the Fed and the Treasury went back and studied that. We talked about what that showed. It showed that there is wealth accumulation and growth in unprecedented ways, and actually in ways that were actually progressive, meaning the more lower income you were, the younger you were, the greater wealth accumulation you saw. If I told you all that, Ricky, and I was like, this is a couple years into the Yang administration, not the Biden administration, would you have the same reaction that you just had? Well, I by and large don't believe or put so much credence in the idea that that the executive branch has so much power over the economy. I do think that we overblow the correlation there. However, what I would say is, given the consumer sentiment, given the polling data, given the rate of inflation for the beginning of your tenure, Bidenomics is not the right messaging to be pushing forward at this point in time. Even if you think that it's it's based on faulty data, it's still is not working on the polling numbers. And Trump is actually um, has higher economic confidence from voters right now than Biden um, across multiple polls. But I would say the problem here is that the Biden administration is just failing on their messaging flat out. Like on November 30th, he tweeted out, let me be clear to any corporation that hasn't brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down. It's time to stop the price gouging. Give American consumers a break, which I think just is like a, a desperate hope that people don't understand what inflation coming down means. And there was a pretty epic community notes moment here where, where Biden could have touted any of those statistics that you just put out. But instead, he's saying, lower the prices, Jack, and like you greedy corporations, which is just pandering to, to people who don't understand how the free market works. But the community notes was epic. And they said, as long as the inflation rate is positive, prices are still increasing. This is on X or Twitter or whatever. The fact that inflation has come down to 3.2% in October means that prices are still going up, albeit at a slower rate than before. So I think that, you know, he's pushing these like Bidenomics messages and these vague demonizing corporations as big, bad, horrible, evil, greedy things that are standing in the way of a, a vibrant economy and low prices. And he's not pointing to any of the metrics that you just brought up, which would be far more effective and would perhaps not get community noted. They for sure have. And when they do, uh, and he, you know, we can look ahead to the State of the Union, I think he'll do it even more forcefully. Whenever they do, the critics will say, well, you're just trying to tell people how to feel, right? You're trying, trying to tell them how to feel about the economy. You're trying to sell them on the economy. And, and I'll get to that in a second, because I actually think the data is really interesting about how people are perceiving the economy. I agree with you that the president has a very limited role in economic growth. But I think any most people would sensibly stipulate that, well, if you're going to say, what does the economic growth look like at the beginning, middle, and end of a presidency? You're going to say the longer the presidency goes on, the more responsibility you have for the numbers that you have. Because if you took, if you asked on January 25th, right after Biden swore the oath of office, how much responsibility he has for inflation versus today, you'd, uh, most reasonable people say more today. 
And as time has gone on, the economic indicators have gotten better. And so many people blamed Biden for those early numbers, including us, I think, on this podcast. I certainly did. And if we're going to blame him for those early numbers early on, I think we should at least give him some credit for the numbers that exist today because they are overwhelmingly positive. And I'll point people in the direction of this piece by Noah Smith, who's like no Biden fanboy. Uh, his post called Vibes versus Data, he basically goes through like the way that people have been you know, engaging virally on these things and just how just fraudulent the claims have been about the economy and widespread these claims have been. We could say the messaging could be better. And I'm on record not thinking Biden should win again. I don't think he's like very effective at messaging anything to the public. But I think on substance, whether you, people give Biden credit or not, it would be weird to blame him because things seem to be going better than they have in a long time economically in this country. Well, I think that the 3.2% the rate is is promising and that there are economists that are projecting a potential 2% rate in the second half of next year, which is what the Fed aims for. I would just say I do agree that some of the conversation around the economy has been off balance with what's actually going on sometimes. But I do want to verbalize what I think is going on a little bit there because I don't think that it's people who are completely ignorant or just falling for propaganda. I think there's a general unease with the economy right now and with positive indicators following just how bizarre of a shit show we emerged from, for lack of a better word, in 2020 onwards and the amount of money that was pumped into the economy and the amount of unrest and insecurity that people feel, the just the turbulence of the pandemic and the fact that we didn't have like some sort of actual crash that we kind of spent our way into somehow being okay for this period of time, the amount of people who were still on on various unemployment benefits and stuff, the amount of strange ongoing regulations. And I, I just, I think that there is a sense that something should have happened based on how catastrophic of a couple of years that we've had and a growing anxiety that that's around the corner. I do feel that there's just discomfort with the way that we've somehow managed to stick the landing so far. I do think that that is, people feel like there's something off. I both I agree with actually what you're saying. And I actually think it's absurd yet true because if you're in, if you're sitting in the Biden White House, you're like, wait a minute, we're getting punished for sticking the landing here, which I'm not even sure they have, right? It's maybe people are right that something's around the corner. But the thing is, like you could only live today. And it's very possible that things, by the way, things always turn south. I've been through, I don't know, three, four recessions in my life, if not more, if you count when I was a child. So who the hell knows when it's coming? And government spending, like there's just even like these, these data points I never thought would be true. Government spending as a percentage of GDP has fallen back to where it was in the 80s. And there's like all these, expl I, th I think the explanation you give is right. I do think people think something's around the corner, but what's fascinating, and Noah Smith pointed this out, he looked at the data and has a chart in his, his essay, there's something uniquely American going on right now, which is he points to other countries and he shows that by and large in other countries, public perceptions of the economy track the actual economic indicators. So if you're in Germany or the UK, et cetera, the way people say the economy is going and the way the economy is actually going are the same. The US is the exception to this. And that begs the question as to why. I and mean, he attempts to answer it. He talks about how like Brian Boitler and Matt Iglesias seem to think there's a negativity bias in American culture. Noah Smith's answer is the following, and I'll, I'll quote this. He says, although negativity bias is certainly a factor, something else is going on here. 
de facto, the problem is U.S. specifics suggest that either a special feature of American society and politics is at work here, or the American media and social media landscapes differs from Europe's in key ways. Since Europeans have Twitter and Facebook and TikTok too, and their newspapers and TV shows aren't that different from ours, I suspect U.S. social and political factors are the cause of the peculiar presence of negative narratives, end quote. So he's basically saying something socially and politically is different about the United States to explain this. Um, he doesn't really offer I do that agree that there's something to that and to the negativity bias and to the the kind of dangers of of a two-party system where it's kind of a good and evil binary. I, I agree with that. I also, I'll just put it out there. I will float this and perhaps this clip will come back to to haunt me or to prove me right. But I just feel like there might be a genuine populist intu- intuition at play here because people people are feeling it still at the at the supermarket. People are still feeling it with their rental prices. And there might be a, a, an intuition that is worth listening to because I think that consumers get and the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder feel the, the, the pain of an economy more acutely than, than analysts and economists. And I don't know, I, maybe it's a, a trickle up moment. I'll let that be my prediction for the future that perhaps Americans are uniquely tuned into something around the corner. Cause I just, I, I share that sense that things are precariously and suspiciously okay right now. And it just doesn't feel like they should be. Well, okay. The predict, if the prediction is the economic indicators are going to get worse, there's no way they don't because they're so good right now. How could they stay this good for that long? I think the second is like, I seem to remember a book called the coddling of the American mind where the second chapter is about the great truth of the, the, what do they call it? The emotional truth of, um, what does it say? Always trust your feelings. Uh, and I think in this case, if people have feelings and then we have data in front of us, I'm going with the data, but also people actually don't feel personally that the economy is bad to them. So Noah Smith quotes this Quinnipiac poll, which shows that when you ask Americans how they, they think the economy is doing, they think it's doing poorly. But if you ask Americans how they personally are doing, they're doing really well. Over 60% of people say they're doing good or excellent. And so I think actually people are saying, I'm fine. It's almost like mirrors the way people talk about schools. Like I like my school. I like my member of Congress. I like my economic situation, but I have this broader perception of things going on. But I think if the question is what should Biden be doing differently, I think you could separate it substantively from messaging wise. I think even if he was a perfect messenger, we're just not in an era where the presidency can shape perceptions as well as like the avalanche of stuff that's out there in the media, social media, and in our larger politics. Well, I think we have a, an anxious populace and I'm, I'm the populist between the two of us, but we'll leave it at that. Shall we talk about a new version of white flight? Yes. Okay. So the 74 uh, Kevin Mankin wrote this article uh, about Asian American families and this study uh, that's posted on the National Bureau of Economic Research, which uh, studied from 2000 to 2016, 152 school districts, which were suburban or well-to-do within California, and asked the question of like, how do white families deal with the influx of Asian Americans? And in this study, Ricky, they found essentially when Asian Americans move in, there's actually white flight from Asian Americans. And it's pretty significant. 
So I'm going to quote from Mankin's article. He says the the results of the calculations were uh, unmistakable with each arrival of an Asian American student in a high income suburban district, 0.6 white students left, mostly departing the community entirely rather than relocating to a private or charter school. After adjusting their observations for moving patterns, different subgroups enrolled at schools at markedly different rates with South Asian and Chinese populations going faster in Koreans and the Japanese. Um, the effect was greater once you made those adjustments. So such that Asian students were associated with the departure of 1.5 white students. So for every Asian student that enters a district, 1.5 white students leave, even after adjusting for movement patterns, like, you know, how, what, you know, is that Asian person actually taking a white person's house that they sold it to, right? What do you think is going on here? I mean, the authors of the study did not really find any considerable demonstration that this is racism or prejudice specifically. And they seem to point towards academic competition more so. And I think it is true that Asian Americans are the fastest growing and and highest achieving minority group in the academic sense. Um, Of people who score over 700 on the math portion of the SAT, 43% are Asian, and yet Asians make up 6% of overall test takers. They statistically have higher GPAs and twice as many AP and IB courses compared to white Americans, um, and they earn ultimately 38% more income than the median American. So I think that could be a factor at play, especially considering that there's been more attention paid to zip codes in school districts in the college admissions process, especially in ultra competitive schools, which, you know, we're looking at wealthy suburbs here. This is not a representative sample of the entire country, but this is a representative sample perhaps of of white families who have interest in getting their kids into elite colleges. And, you know, even coming from Lawrenceville, my high school, I, I know that there is a lot of attention paid to the fact that, you know, when you come from a more elite school or a more high achieving school, that certain colleges and universities will have, you know, unofficial quotas on how many kids they want to let in from each given school. And there's inter-school competition that's felt to a really acute degree. Um, And they also have interest in promoting geographic diversity, something I think will continue to become more of a factor in the post-SCOTUS ruling uh, world here. But I mean, I think that that certainly could be playing a role here. I mean, even I had a, an article for the Post recently that was about how a lot of families are literally moving across the country to different states into like buying a home in like Kentucky to game the fact that there's a bias towards the valedictorian of a school or someone that comes from a more rural area. And so I think that if you do have more highly competitive students coming into school districts, it's that could potentially be a factor behind it. But I also do wonder if there's not other factors that are potentially at at play that are hard to parse out, like just a community gradually changing and shifting in in its constitution or how many, or, you know, this is this period of time, how many people are moving away because they can work remotely or they're not as tied to their zip code necessarily. And maybe there is a better school in a different district that they decided that they wanted to go to now. I mean, I think that there are, it, it would be too simplistic to say that it's one specific factor entirely. Yeah, I agree that. And the people who did this study at, and Kevin, I think are both clear to say that right now we know the correlation, we don't know the causation, right? And I think the question is, well, what, if there was a cause here, what would it look like? And is there any evidence of people's true motivations here? And he quotes this book uh, from 2022 from a Tufts University sociologist and the book's called Race at the Top. And in that book, the author profiles a district 
in the East Coast, like a wealthy community, and doesn't name what the community is, but like quotes white parents who will tell you straight up in this book's accounting that they fear that their kids will keep up with Asian Americans. And then in in the same article, they kind of go through, well, what are those differences that are showing up? Is, is it just academic performance or is it also the way that Asian American families pursue that academic performance? And they, they talk about a study um, that uses microdata from consumer surveys to show that white and Asian families differ dramatically in their annual expenditures on K-12 education. So Asian American families outspend white families overall on K-12 expenditures, but they also are more likely to use it for tutoring and other instruction outside of school, whereas white families are more likely to use that money on sports and other cultural activities. And there's also data that showed, and this is from a 2021 study, that Kumon private tutoring centers were more likely to be concentrated in Asian American neighborhoods. And so I think it's is a fundamental difference of quote unquote educational values. Whereas I think uh, as somebody who is like in part raised uh, imperfectly, because I was mostly raised by my mom, but my dad brought that sort of Asian American ethos to, all right, I came from poverty and I came here because I excelled on a, on a standardized test and a series of achievable academic metrics. And that was my ticket out of poverty. Now, in front of me is like this series of achievable aims, like do really well in math, reading, score well on tests, know your academics really well, get great grades. That's a, a predictable path to success that Asians are, at least my Asian American family, and it seems like the data seems to suggest a lot of them, seem to grapple with, grapple onto and say, this is our ticket to the American dream. And I think families who have been here um, for many generations may take it more for granted and say, all right, like my kids will be fine either way. I want them to be more well-rounded and my definition of what it means to be fine is different. I think both reactions are understandable, but I think what Asian Americans are frustrated over is that just as they're starting to truly incredibly excel in these metrics, people are trying to get rid of those metrics. And I think it's really mm -hmm. frustrating families. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that there are kids that are actively like contorting their, their extracurriculars to look less Asian or less stereotypical. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that this is an Asian specific phenomenon and not does not apply to other non-white ethnicities and the fact that they were unable to find any like significant demonstration that this is racism motivated, which I mean, I think also is just backed up by the fact that it is Asian specific would make me think that there is, it is a, a cultural element that could potentially be at play, at least in a subconscious sense. And I know that, I mean, I, I suppose ways around that would be to de-emphasize, especially at elite schools, class rankings, and also to de-emphasize the idea that there should be necessarily specific caps on, on individual schools, which is not really a very holistic way to look at people, in my opinion. And I think especially in, I mean, at least I, this is certainly different in, in a public school system, but in a, in a place like Lawrenceville, what that lends itself to is, is the cap being fulfilled by people who are legacies or people with special interests at these colleges. So that ends up being even less meritocratic as well. Um, so I think that it's it's interesting to see how anticipating college admissions and whatever is going to happen in in the wake of this SCOTUS ruling and stuff is legitimately shaping the geographical distribution of people around the country in a way that I think is is really profound and and demonstrates just how much of a chokehold these institutions have on society and and how they're actually pushing people apart both interpersonally and even racially. I think it's it's super disturbing and something that um is worth continuing to look at.
Yeah, and I think uh, the past year, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. There, there has been a cleavage within the sort of the the big tent of the Democratic Party, which is incredibly diverse, but but not always on the same page about their values. And I think that there, if we're using very general language, right? Which anytime we talk about groups, it's to say it's imperfect is an understatement. But I think there are significant pockets of both the Asian American communities and the Jewish American communities who are, I think, starting to feel like their set of values, their way of life, their identities are often in conflict with the dominant sort of narratives and values being pushed by certain progressive leaders. And I don't think I don't think those progressive leaders necessarily represent the majority of Democrats, but I think often they take up a lot of oxygen in the room. Um, they often are pushing through policies to reflect their values at the expense of members of the coalition. And I think that those tensions are real. And I think that they're going to they're gonna play out over the course of this year. I think the tensions between differing views on some of these issues uh, are going to cause a lot of headaches for people like Biden who are trying to hold together that coalition. Because I don't think that, uh, and I see this in the education world, I don't think a lot of my sort of co-collaborators over the years who have been pushing for racial equity in the general sense have applied that standard consistently to Asian Americans. And and I think that tension is is something that they're going to have to live with and they're going to have to answer to in the years ahead. Agreed. All right. Well, that's a great place to end. Ricky, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, and of course, uh, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We've been seeing all those great reviews. Keep them up. Our voicemail is 321-200-0570. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.